Uh, good evening. My name's Jim Lewis. Uh, I'm from CSIS. Thanks for coming out on what's still a snowy evening. Uh, today's event is called Dawn of the Code War, where we are lucky to have uh, two of the leading figures in this. Uh, Dawn of the Code War, of course, is John Carlin's book. Uh, we'll talk about cyber, China, Russia, crime here. Let me give you the bios of our speakers. Uh, John Carlin is the former Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice's National Security Division. He was Chief of Staff for then FBI Director Robert Mueller. He chairs Morrison and Forster's Global Risk and Crisis Management Practice Group and is co-chair of the National Security Practice Group. Um, he served in both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations and regularly advises industry organizations and companies on cyber and other national security issues, internal investigations, and other government enforcement actions. So one of the things we'll talk about tonight is both the uh, CFIUS process and the FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Uh, if we have time, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Our other speaker uh, is the current Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division. So he's done everything that John Carlin has done and more. Um, <laughs> right. What's a little known fact, Jim, is that John and I are friends from law school. I, I actually yeah, knew that, but I wasn't going to say it. odd <laughs> that we ended up in the same place yeah. <laughs> 20 years later. So there you go. Uh, he, NSD, as you know, oversees uh, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, expert controls, uh, the CFIUS process, uh, Office of Law and Policy and the Office of Intelligence. And uh, I think it's relatively new, the Office of Justice for Victims of Overseas Terrorism. Prior to joining the Department of Justice, John was the Vice President and Assistant Attorney General at the Boeing Corporation. Um, he served in the first National Security Division back in 2006 and then was uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Law and Policy. He also, do you still teach at Georgetown, or you have to no, stop? No, I have to stop once you do this. Okay, and he was a professor, adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Law Center. So, oh, and I should say, because it's clerked for uh, Justice Antonin Scalia and uh, Darman O'Scanlan of the U.S. Court of Appeals. So, pretty impressive record there. I think what we're going to do tonight, if it's okay, is we'll have uh, John Carlin I'm going to have to figure out a way to distinguish among Johns. We'll have John Carlin open, talk about his book, frame the issues for us. We'll then have John, the other John, uh, give his views, frame the issues, respond to anything that John Carlin said. Uh, then I'll have a few moderated questions, and then we'll turn it over to the audience. So uh, it should be a good event. With that, John, please go ahead. Sure, and uh, thanks, Jim, and thanks to CSIS for Hosting us, uh, hosting us tonight. So, wrote the book Dawn of the Cold War, really to tell the story of incredible cases that prosecutors, investigators, intelligence agents had already brought about a war that's already occurring. So we were seeing continually at the National Security Division when I was at FBI, China, North Korea, Iran, Russia, even terrorist groups starting to use computer hacking and our, the vulnerability of our digital infrastructure to attack the United States and our allies. 
And while we were seeing these cases, we saw incredible work done to figure out exactly who did it and how they did it. When I left government, realized when I was talking to boards of directors, to chief uh, executive officers, that these stories simply uh, were not known. And so people were not adequately thinking about what the risks might be when you move information from analog, from books and papers, to digital space, and then connect it through a medium that fundamentally was never designed with security in mind. So stories like a company who got hacked, thought it was a relatively unsophisticated hacker that was inside their system, stole a relatively small amount of personally identifiable information, names, addresses. And then if that company had not worked with the government, they wouldn't have found out that on the other side was not the low-level crook that it looked like, although it was a low-level crook who really did want the 500 bucks of Bitcoin that they asked for uh, from the company, but was an extremist from Kosovo who had moved from Kosovo to Malaysia and with a fellow co-conspirator had targeted this US-based company, this retailer, stolen information that was entrusted by the customers that work with that company. And although he wanted that 500 bucks, he also had become friends only online, only through Twitter, with the most notorious terrorist in the world at the time, a man named Junaid Hussein, who was someone who lived in England, was a British citizen, had been arrested for computer hacking, served time, and when he got out of prison, was radicalized and had moved to Raqqa, Syria, where he was located at the heart of the Islamic State of the Levant. And at the time, as the head of the National Security Division, we were seeing an unprecedented number of international terrorism cases all throughout the country. And while Al-Qaeda had relied on a strategy of training and vetting operatives overseas and deploying them, we in the government had gotten very good at disrupting that type of plot. And so new divisions, like the National Security Division, the first new litigating division in 50 years, like the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, billions of dollars worth of new structures and infrastructures have been set up to prevent an attack like September 11th from occurring again, where thousands lost their lives. And the focus of those reforms was to share information across the law enforcement intelligence divide within our government and to work with fellow governments across, seas, across the seas. And we got good at preventing Al-Qaeda from doing what it had done, but the terrorists changed their tactic. And what we saw was, with the growth of the Islamic State of the Levant, is just like Al-Qaeda used aviation against us, um, in that case, turning an airplane into a bomb, that the Islamic State in the Levant was using another Western innovation, social media. And they were using it to try to turn human beings into weapons, to convince them to kill where they live. So inside the United States, we were seeing, not in any particular geographic area or linked to any ethnic group or even with people with strong religious beliefs, what we were seeing, and we had open investigations in all 50 states, was an unprecedented number of international terrorism cases that we were bringing, over 100, and that of those cases, the defendants we saw were one in almost every case that involved social media, and two in linked to that fact with the age of the defendants. 60% of the defendants were 25 or younger, and most troubling, one-third of the international terrorism defendants, one-third were 21 or younger. That simply had never been the face of terrorism in the United States before. And one of the most effective people at turning those kids 
into terrorists was Junaid Hussein located in Raqqa, Syria? And that's where our stories merge. Junaid Hussein befriends, and his name was Farizi, the individual in Malaysia, only through Twitter. And he convinces Farizi to take what looks like it's just a computer hacking problem, these stolen names and addresses, and give them to him. And Junaid Hussein could care less about the 500 bucks. What Junaid Hussein does is call that list down to a kill list. And then again, using Western-provided technology, in this case, that's given to them for free, Twitter, he blasted that kill list back to the United States and said, kill these people by name, by address, with the information that had been entrusted to this retail company where they live. That's the current threat, where computer hacking and national security threats merge, and it puts our companies on the front lines of what previously would be government problems. We are we're able to take effective action. In that case, as we talk about in, in the book, the reason I can go into so many details is Farizi was arrested, thanks to cooperation from the Malaysians, is serving 20 years after being brought to the Eastern District of Virginia and convicted. And Junaid Hussein was killed in an openly acknowledged military strike that Central Command has acknowledged in Raqqa, Syria, where he was outside the reach of law enforcement. But think about how complex that is. It's five different countries. It's moving at the speed and scale of, di uh, of digital space. And most importantly, and we here, I'll turn it over to uh, John. Most importantly, all those reforms that we put in place, those billions of dollars that were focused on sharing information within and between governments, they won't work with the new threat that we face. They're necessary, but not sufficient. With the new threats that we're facing, where companies are on the front line, whether it's nation states or terrorist groups or organized criminal groups, we need to share information at speed and scale with the private sector and incentivize the private sector to come in and share information at speed and scale back to the government. That's the only way we can take effective action to protect against these new threats. And we haven't yet made the structural reforms to do that. I think we're in the midst of a transition where awareness needs to be raised, both by the companies that are dealing with this, by citizens to send demand signals, and by our officials in government. So it, it's interesting. Um, you know, John and I hadn't sort of mapped this out or, uh, before we came up here, but it's interesting, John, to hear you start on the terrorism side of cyber. Uh, and it probably reflects uh, the historic evolution of this effort in the National Security Division and the government at large. Because the thing that struck me, so I was in the department at the National Security Division from 2006, still very much a post 9-11 terrorist focused um, division until 2009 and then coming back to it in, uh, about a year ago in 2018. What struck me was how much more of the focus was on nation states and including, in large part, uh, their cyber activity. So absolutely, you know, when I was there in 2006, 2007, 2008, we were talking about terrorist use of the internet. That's probably as far into cyber as we ever got. Uh, and uh, on the terrorism side of things, certainly in, in the recruiting activity, you know, that you're talking about. But watching uh, the National Security Division evolve organizationally the way that, that you changed it in, and Lisa did, um, and then you know coming back into and getting read right into all these programs and the threats. I was really struck by, and I'm still struck just day to day, how much of my attention is focused on the nation state side and on 
the cyber side of things, nation state cyber operations. And um, you know, one of the things that John did when he was there is he created a new section within the division that really focuses on these nation state threats and on cyber threats in particular. And uh, the volume of activity that we see really from four countries, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, is just, uh, uh, you know, some days it seems overwhelming. Uh, they're very different actors. They have different objectives, and uh, they operate differently. Um, we're obviously all very familiar with, uh, uh, with Russia's activity in 2016, much more on the political side, continues to today. A lot of uh, social stoking, social divisiveness, trying to weaken American democracy. That's a lot of the focus and of it on the Chinese side. A lot of economic espionage, uh, stealing intellectual property to create competing goods uh, in China. North Korea really just trying to raise money for the regime, uh, and Iran, a, a mix of activity, some of it on the, um, on the, on the political side, uh, and uh, some of it more broadly in uh, stealing intellectual property. And so last year, we indicted cases on the cyber end from all four of those actors, and that was, uh, I don't know, we've had a year where we've had cases for all four of those folks. Uh, before, but it, it's really a reflection of the level of cyber activity that we're seeing right now. There were four indictments just on the Russians, two from the Special Counsel's Office, two from the National Security Division. Uh, and um, the level of activity, and I have to say the infrastructure that was put in place by um, John and his folks before, uh, and the thinking that was done that allowed us really um, uh, to get over the hump of charging uh, government officials for breaking U.S. law when it also violated kind of international norms. And so here I'm talking about the 2014 indictment of um, the PLA folks for stealing uh, commercial intellectual property on behalf of the, uh, of the private sector in China. Um, that work having been done, it's something that we can then continue uh, to build on. And I know, and, and you go through this in your book, that was a real um, hurdle to get over and, and a, you know, a lot of thinking and a lot of work that, that went into doing that. Um, so now we're able, and if you look at the end of last year, we indicted uh, four or five cases on the cyber end just in the last quarter of the year. And uh, you see this work picking up momentum, but as I you know, started, it's also just a reflection of how much activity is going on out there. Then to come to John's last point, which was on the private sector, we need the private sector. We need the help of the private sector to do these cases. We can also provide a tremendous amount of benefit, I think, to the private sector. And so our indictments are a way also of getting that story out. And I think in particular about a case uh, we just did, it was less on the cyber side, more on the economic espionage side, um, although those two go together very nicely. Uh, at last fall where, you know, uh, we indicted uh, a number of uh, a, a Taiwan company, a Chinese company, and um, some folks for stealing, for poaching people and then stealing intellectual property of an American company called Micron. And the reason why I like that case and like to talk about that case so much is it's a case in which um, ultimately our indictment 
when together with the Commerce Department's use of its authorities, and this is definitely an area where all the parts of the government need to be working together on this, they use their authority to block the would-be competitor of the American company in China and in Taiwan from buying the products that they needed to develop the product for which they had stolen the intellectual property. And in so doing, they stopped the harm in its tracks. And we need those success stories, I think, in the private sector to convince the private sector to say, there is a real benefit for you to come forward and talk to us. Some of the, all of the successful cases we've had, I, I suspect in your time too, have involved the cooperation of the private sector and of the company that's been the target uh, of the hack. And it's very useful to have examples where we can show the benefit to them of doing this, as well as, of course, the benefit to the broader uh, national security and, and interests of, of the US. Um, so that continuing to build, John, as you say, sort of the organizations and the working relationships with uh, the private sector to get there, to enlist their help in this is, is the critical, I think, step that we're trying to continue right now. It is amazing how much has, has changed. One of the uh, stories to tell in the book was the story of that first case. So um, the indictment of five members of the People's Liberation Army, a specialized unit 61398. And at the time that it occurred, the idea of using the criminal justice system against a nation state actor was one that many people thought would never occur. And I remember when I was prosecuting these cases as a computer hacking prosecutor or CHIP, computer hacking intellectual property prosecutor, which is a name that former uh, Director Mueller came up with when he was U.S. Attorney in Northern District of California. I don't think he knew what the CHIPs meant, uh, that there was a show called CHIPs, not really his thing, uh, but the rest of us were stuck with the name uh, going forward. <laughs> So uh, we used to work with a squad at the FBI. They just did the criminal cases, and there was a lot to do. Then uh, when an agent switched squads to the intelligence squad, they went behind a locked, secured compartment door, and they just disappeared. Never saw them again. And it wasn't until I went over to the FBI's chief of staff that the door opened, and we could see the incredible work being done on the intelligence side of the house that really mapped out what China in particular was doing when it came to economic espionage. So watching in real time. It was a giant jumbotron screen, and so you could actually see it um, through a graphic user interface. And you watched as Chinese military members went into places like universities, hopped to corporations, and then you watched the data exfiltrate out. Billions and billions of dollars worth of trade secrets, trade negotiation uh, strategies, and the like, what former director of the National Security Agency, Keith Alexander, called the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. So when we went back to the Justice Department, thought, well, boy, we're not even doing what we do. Our core mission is on the terrorism side of sharing information across the law enforcement and intelligence divide when it comes to these cyber uh, cases. It's kept on the intelligence side of the house. So we trained and created a new group, National Security Cyber Specialists, who on the one hand would know Computer, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and Electronic Communication Privacy Act, but on the other hand would be trained to handle classified information. And the FBI said, thou shalt share to all of its field office with this new specially trained cadre, and let's see what we can do. Maybe a lot of these can't be brought, but some of them can be. That's what led to the first case uh, of its kind in 2014. There was a lot of criticism saying, hey, what are you doing? Everybody uses intelligence services. Actually, Jim Lewis was one of the supporters who said, this is a good idea, because this isn't traditional intelligence collection, and that facts matter. And so 
in the case we showed what they're stealing was not uh, national secrets. It was things like email telling the pricing for a solar company so they could price dump right below where that solar company could bear. And then, to add insult to injury, when that solar company went bankrupt and sued for unfair trade practices, they stole the whole litigation strategy out from under them. <laughs> and we put an attachment showing that when this activity happened, so from 9 a.m. in the morning till around noon, it spiked. It decreased from noon to 1, lunch break. It increased again from 1 to 6. It decreased overnight on weekends and on Chinese holidays. So the former prosecutor in me would say, circumstantial evidence that this is coming from China. But it also showed that this was the day job of the time of the second largest military in the world, was to target private companies to steal economic information for the benefit of their competitors <coughs> overseas. And no company can compete against that type of resource on their own. They need government help. And so in some respects, many of you are familiar with an easement, this is the idea in US uh, common law that develops from British common law that says, if you let someone walk across your lawn long enough, they earn the legal right to walk across your lawn. Uh, that's the easement. That's why people put up no trespass signs, right? Get off our lawn. In some ways, this criminal case was a giant no trespass sign, get off our lawn. This isn't the law that we want to live on. And international law is a law of customary law. If we continue to allow, as former director Comey used to call it, a drunken burglar to be going around not caring whether anyone saw their activity through people's uh, houses, or in this case, companies, then we're setting the norm that says that's OK. And you know, it's grown, I think, uh, a lot since then. The first prosecutors that were doing it essentially were in, uh, we put them in a closet, a supply closet, because we didn't have any space. None of this was funded to say, hey, go figure this out and see if you can bring a case. And since I, then. I treat them a lot better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that, about results. That kind of touches on one of the key criticisms you hear. You've partially answered that question. This is an effort to create accountability, maybe impose consequences, but sometimes what you hear from people is, well, you indict these folks, but you're never going to bring them to trial. They're never going to go to jail. Why is this worth doing? Now, I have my own views on that, but why don't we get your two views as to how you would respond to that criticism? Yeah, let me hit a couple reasons and then turn it over to John. One, I always think it's a strange criticism. Um, you know, you're starting to prosecute people, but crime hasn't stopped. We've had homicide for a long time. I used to be a homicide prosecutor. No one ever told me, don't lock up the murderers because people continue to kill. They said, catch more. So I don't know why you would say, if people are, if you're seeing this vast problem of theft or ransomware or destructive use of malware, why you would say, don't use the criminal justice system at all. Um, secondly, it's, it's wrong on its premise because you have caught people. At the time that mm. we had done the PLA case, and I was, they were getting a lot of criticism along that line saying, all you're doing is naming and shaming. You'll never catch anyone. Uh, and this is one of the stories that told in, in the book that hadn't been, I think, really told before. We had someone who was arrested, Sue Bin. And this will ring some bells when it comes to current events because he actually was arrested pursuant to US process. He was in a conspirator. Uh, with Chinese intelligence to attack Boeing, actually, among other companies, and he was arrested in Canada. Uh, and 
in order to uh, not interfere with the extradition process, we kept our mouths shut when we were being told you'll never catch anyone or arrest them, <laughs> that we had someone who was currently in a jail cell awaiting extradition to the United States. And it is also the case that while he was in jail, China then arrested two Canadian coffee shop uh, owners and said that they were spies <laughs> and asked Canada not to extradite um, while that was uh, while that was Gee, occurring. that sounds vaguely familiar. Exactly, we've seen this playbook. <laughs> and Canada uh, held strong. Subin was extradited. The coffee shop owners were returned, and Subin was convicted in a court, sentenced, uh, and sentenced according to his crime. So these are real cases with real consequences. And lastly. Um, I do agree fundamentally that the criminal justice alone will not solve the problem of nation state uh, cyber activity. And it was, that was never the strategy. The idea was it should be one of the tools that's brought to bear. It's a great way uh, using one of the real strengths of America, which is the world's faith in the independence and impartiality of our justice system, that the facts are followed, and they're followed according to the law and without regard to politics, to show that this is occurring, to make the private sector aware in detail. And then, hopefully, it will be the basis for the use of other tools. And John talked about uh, one today, which is this Commerce Department authority to designate entities um, as those who do uh, are harmful to the, to the national security interests of the United States. But another tool that I, I think has not been used enough that was signed into effect under an executive order by President Obama and has been uh, signed again with the same declaration of an economic emergency by President Trump is the executive order that allows the sanctioning not just of the cyber actors who steal information, but of the companies who benefit from the stolen secrets. That's what the victims are looking for. They want to see uh, fairness. You know, they've lost the trade secret that's being used against them, and they want to see economic harm on those who are taking advantage of the stolen information. That's an important tool to start bringing to the table when it comes to economic espionage, and it has been used when it comes to other countries. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, to that question, absolutely, you know, everything that John said just in September, I believe, we extradited from Belgium a Chinese intelligence officer who had been charged with um, economic espionage to steal uh, commercial jet engine technology uh, by co-opting uh, employees of, uh, of companies that, that were develop American companies that were developing this technology. And uh, the person traveled to Belgium. He was arrested on a US request and extradited back. So sometimes we absolutely do get people, right? So that I, I think the other thing that we've done is raise public awareness of the issue. And, and, and that's something that I think our indictments can do. The, the indictments, you know, as John was saying, they, they are a unique um, element of the way the government can speak because what the government is saying is not only, you know, we think this is happening or we assess with a high likelihood this is happening, but it's saying, I, I can get up in court and prove every element of what I've laid out in this indictment beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is quite a statement. And I can tell you there are a lot of things that we know that we can never get there on, right? Okay. And, and so what we're saying we can get there is, I have admissible evidence that can prove all, all of these things. I can find witnesses, I, can, I have the documents, I can show the, um, you know, the, the, 
the where the documents came from and, and that, um, that that they say what what we say they say that I think has a lot of resonance uh, in uh, the American public and so uh, you know we sort of jealously guard the credibility by keeping strong control on what we're willing to allege but um, you know that's effectively what we're saying the use of other uh, agencies tools absolutely we're just a piece of this puzzle you don't change behavior just by you know even five six seven eight nine ten indictments a year uh, but we do if we're raising awareness uh, if the Treasury Department is using its authorities, if the Commerce Department is using its authorities, and of course if the State Department is able to then use all of this information and, uh, in dealing with the, the countries that are, that are doing this. And, you know, you know, you were talking about norms and international norms of behavior. I mean, from where I sit, we, there is an international norm. That is, the intelligence agencies of countries do not steal commercial intellectual property, period. We don't do it. And the reason why I know it's an international norm is that in the last eight years, 90% of the economic espionage cases we have charged involve one country, and that's China, which means the rest of the world isn't doing it either, uh, with you know, every once in a while some exception. So we very much want to reinforce those norms, and then over time, with the help of, of other agencies, change the, uh, the kind of behavior that, that we've seen. To the extent you can, both of you, um, Tell us about the threat landscape. Tell us about, you'd mentioned 90% of the economic espionage crimes uh, come from one particular country. How about some of the others, financial crime? Is that Russia? Where do you see North Korea and Iran? You've mentioned four, our four favorite countries mm -hmm. here. Um, so what's I think, the threat landscape? You know, North Korea, you see financial crime, and basically you see a regime stealing to fund itself, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't have a lot of hard currency. It's looking for hard currency, and that, that's the way it, it gets the hard currency. Um, in uh, China, as I mentioned, it's a lot of economic espionage. Now, I'm putting aside, all of these countries also do political espionage by cyber means, right? And so um, that's true of Russia, that's true of China, that's true of Iran. They're trying to figure out what the American government thinks about different issues, where the pressure points might be on different issues, uh, and, and I include within that sort of military technology as well. That's something that countries have been doing for centuries to each other, right? And the, the problem, you know, as, as we see it, is when you take those same organizations, the same techniques, the same tools, the same tactics, and you train them on the private sector, and, and, and you steal the intellectual private property of that private sector. As John said, that company is not going to be able to resist um, you know, someone as well-funded as, as that. With the Russians, certainly, very clearly, we see the traditional uh, political espionage, including by cyber means. We also see um, the, uh, you know, as I said, sort of everything we saw in 2016, uh, the use of social media, um, the hack and dump that we charged, you know, hacking the Obama campaign's emails and then dumping them into the public. That, I think, is one of the hardest challenges we'll see going forward, by the way, on that, these sort of political influence things, which is, you know, and I think it's actually very difficult from the media, and I know that there are a number of folks here from the media, you have real emails that have real news value that were gotten illegally, you know, for some, uh, you know, foreign policy advantage. 
how do you react to that, right? What stories do you write with that? I, I think that's one of the harder challenges we're going to have going forward. We, didn't, we did not see that in, the, in 2018, luckily, but it's, it's going to be there. In 20, I think you, you actually have that, John, in your book at the, uh, in 2008, I guess, in the Obama-McCain campaign, where both campaigns were hacked into. That time, they weren't dumped, but you saw the, the you know, the beginnings of this strategy of getting into campaigns. And campaigns can be very soft targets, especially when people use their personal email, which is very normal, I think, in a, in a campaign environment. Yeah, you really saw the bookend of the threat. So when I, the way I first met the officials of the Obama uh, administration was, uh, was over at the FBI with another person from FBI. We went to tell them that their campaign emails had been hacked. And we also told the McCain campaign that their emails had been hacked. And at the time, the assessment was, we think they're collecting this for traditional intelligence purposes. Eight years later, you see similar uh, theft of emails by Russia, but now it's for active measures uh, campaign to actually affect the results and try to undermine confidence in the integrity of our election system, of our democratic system. And in between, you know, one of the cases I wish we'd learned more from at the, at the time um, was the first real uh, major destructive attack through cyber means on US soil that we'd seen. Um, actually, the first one really was an attack by Iranian-affiliated actor, actors on Sands Casino. And so we were never, we war game out for years. We're not thinking it's going to be because uh, a nation state adversary is going to attack a gambling house or a movie company, because the next one was North Korea on Sony. But it was because they didn't like something Shelley Adelson had said. And so they unleashed malware on SANS that essentially turned computers into bricks. It wiped their operating system. The one that everyone remembers, though, is the North Korean attack on Sony. And thought a little bit more about why everyone remembers it and what the damage was. I can tell you, it was um, after war gaming out for years what it would look like if a rogue nuclear-armed nation decided to attack the United States through cyber means. Did not think it would be about a movie about a bunch of pot-smoking journalists. Um, the, uh, it was the only time in my career I've gone to the Situation Room, I had to brief the President of the United States and start with the plot summary of a movie. Uh, for those of you that have seen that movie, the interview, it's not easy to summarize. The movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I saw it and managed to, uh, and I played North Korea. The scene with the tiger is pretty good, though. It's pretty compelling. Uh, it might be the only good scene. No, the one in the tank where he's playing the uh, whatever it is. <laughs> Jim's a fan. He's a, uh, it took we 15 to minutes to watch because you can fast forward. Yeah, we had to watch the whole, we watched it, you know, and so we were going into the <laughs> morning briefing that you still do, right, with yep. the director of the FBI and the uh, attorney general. We all had had to watch the interview uh, the <laughs> night before over Christmas holiday. So along with the rest of our threat briefing, uh, we could discuss what to, what to do about it. Anyway, they, uh, <laughs> but they had every right to make the movie. And people say, well, why'd you treat that as a national security event? It's not critical infrastructure. As much as I like the movies, you know, it's not our electricity, it's not our water, but it, it was an attack on a core value, right, with the value of free speech, just like really the Sands Casino attack was. So it was an authoritarian leader overseas saying, I don't like what you have to say here, and I'm going to impose my values, which say you can't say it without consequence. That's why there were situation room meetings and a decision you had to retaliate and think about it like a national security threat. But why do people remember it? Because that attack did three things. One, 
It turned computers into bricks like SANS. Not why people remember Sony. No one remembers the SANS attack. Number two, they stole a pretty decent amount of intellectual property, movies and the like. Um, that had happened before with a PlayStation. That's not the one that everyone remembers, though. The third thing they did was hit the softest part of the system, the email, to steal internal, salacious, gossipy emails. Then they used non-traditional media. And then they used, ironically, our free press and media to do the damage for them who published all these stories about it. That's what hurt Sony, the brand, the most. Um, and it was ironic that our media was carrying out, under the protections of the First Amendment, a fundamental attack on the, the right of free expression and the, and the First Amendment. And I don't think, I'm not sure we learned well enough, number one, that our regulations, our infrastructure was organized around things, electricity, water, et cetera, but not around values. So the core tool, the new executive order we had, uh, put in place didn't really allow you to use it um, if it was an attack on a value. And so, and secondly, this information warfare as a, as a technique, easy to do, cheap, I think Russia was watching. And so you see them apply both of those same two lessons. They attack a core value, they did the, our democratic system. And secondly, they did it through information warfare, through non-traditional uh, non techniques. Now, once you know that, one of the stories I tell in the book, which I always think is great, is the creativity of the French campaign. When Macron was running for president, he figured, hey, there's no way I'm keeping the Russians out of my system. So what I'm going to do instead is, in addition to the true emails, I'm going to deliberately put fake emails inside our campaign system. Then when they predictably steal it, and they did, and dump it, which they did, which they told the media, we're not going to tell you which is which. Some of these emails are real and some aren't. And it helped uh, keep them from publishing the, the stories and allowed him to effectively win the campaign. That's the type of technique we often talk about now with private sector clients who are thinking, well, I can't keep them out. Um, so what can I do to focus on resilience? What happens the next day to keep the damage to a minimum when they get in? John, you mentioned tools. And so let me start by asking. John Demers, what are your best tools in this fight? What are your best tools as an agency, as a law enforcement official, and where do they fit into the national portfolio of tools? Because if the goal is to change opponent thinking, what's the best way to do that? I will say that having talked to some Russians, they clearly enjoy exploiting the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't see how we're going to deal with that easily. But what tools do you have that you use where does it fit into the larger national picture? Well, our tool, you know, our primary tool is always the indictment, right? Now, the FBI is different. Um, mm -hmm. They're both an intelligence agency and a law enforcement agency. Um, and they're really the folks we rely on to be able to do attribution in these cases, which is the hardest part of most of these cases, is figuring out who is behind the activity. Uh, but the, the main tool we have really is uh, indictment. Uh, I do think, I mean, even in the case of Russia, obviously we continue to see uh, the spread of social divisive activity. But when I think about, I'm actually kind of optimistic about this. I mean, when I think about the conversation and the awareness that we have now of what the Russians do, and I think about where we were in 2016, um, we, it's not that we're able to stop them getting on Facebook and starting all these accounts. I mean, that, that's impossible to stop in its entirety. Uh, but we are, uh, but, but folks know how to 
uh, understand what's happening a lot better and then how to gauge that in the context of making their own decisions. So, and I, I think one way that we've done that is through the use of indictments and laying out, whether it's in the special counsel's office or in the National Security Division, laying out the kinds of activities that the Russians conducted in 2016 and, uh, and, and, and since then up, up to uh, you know, 2018, I think October of 2018 was our last uh, Russian indictment. Um, so I think, you know, but again, that, that's, that then what we do, and, and what, what we did in some of those Russian cases, you have the Treasury Department standing up there and saying, and as a result, I'm gonna sanction these individuals. I think John's absolutely right. I mean, when it comes to economic espionage, we need to have the same follow through in order. Ultimately, the way you change behavior is, you know, this behavior isn't worthwhile to do anymore, right? And it's not worthwhile doing anymore if, like in the case I described, in the Micron case, now you've spent $5 billion on a factory that can't produce anything because you can't get the products you need to produce the competing product. And it's not worth doing anything if um, you, know, you are sanctioned in, in one way or another by, by the Treasury Department. So a lot of this is about imposing costs on the people who would otherwise benefit from uh, the activity. We can't you know, we can do some of that directly, especially if you end up going to jail, that's quite a cost. But a lot of it is supporting other agencies too and their tools. So, you know, when, um, in terms of changes in behavior, one thing I think you're starting to, to see is there are, there are different ways that this imposes costs once it becomes public. And so one would be, for instance, you're seeing now Australia and New Zealand, they're putting in new laws that say, hey, we don't want to allow foreign investment or acquisitions that's going to have countries who are irresponsible in the way that they use these tools start to take information from us. So that makes it harder then for, for instance, a Chinese company who wants to do business to be able to do business in those parts of the world. And you also just saw unprecedentedly Poland bring a case where they knew there was going to be strong reaction and possible retaliation, but to say kind of enough is enough is enough, if we catch you doing this type of espionage, we're going to take action. And I think that is in part because they are seeing the United States bring these cases, lay out this information publicly, and so it becomes more the norm that if we catch this type of behavior, we'll change it. And so ideally, the costs get high enough where they say, hey, we want to do business in the world. We'd rather invest in research and development instead of theft. And the fact that we've been stealing at this uh, level and using economic espionage is making the, the rest of the world that we want to do business with say, you know, enough is enough, pass new laws and bring new cases. One of the things I've been wrestling with for the last couple months is you know, we might be in a new kind of contest. I think you've both said something along those lines. We had traditional tools for pushing back on espionage. And if you think about the Linex case in the 80s, the expulsion of the Chinese uh, Russian diplomats, I beg your pardon, uh, more recently, the indictments are powerful. What other ways can we start to manage the espionage problem? Because if we're in a conflict, it may not be a Cold War-style conflict with for armed forces. It might be more on the espionage and covert side. What are the best ways to deal with espionage? Indictments are great. What else could we do? 
And let me uh, broaden out a little bit and answer the espionage, because one thing we haven't talked about that we're also seeing, um, and this is less, this is other countries, but uh, two things in particular with, with Russia, but also North Korea, which is the indiscriminate use of cyber weapons of mass destruction. So self-propagating uh, worms that end up locking up people's computers, so-called ransom worms. And we've seen two uh, versions of this. One, WannaCry, that uh, was attributed publicly to North Korea, that affected hospitals across the world, along with other companies. It locked up everyone's computers so you couldn't uh, access your information. And then it, it, it claimed that if you paid a certain sum, you'd be able to open up your computer and get access to the data again. But that, in fact, didn't, didn't work with WannaCry, so just hit companies indiscriminately. And then a worse version of that was NotPetya, unleashed by Russia, originally in Ukraine, propagated all over the world, hit one company, uh, Maersk Shipping, uh, disrupted global shipping for a period of time. And it was only really thanks to incredible work by Maersk at being resilient and getting back up and running. It didn't have a broader impact, but it, it cost them $500 million, roughly, in loss. Or FedEx, same. Uh, mm -hmm. Same issue, not Petra, got hit by the same worm, cost them $300 million. That's just two companies alone, it hit companies around, around the world. So when you're thinking about a deterrence and use of all tools strategy, I think you need to, to start with how do we deter destructive, uh, destructive attacks against critical infrastructure, but also these ones that affect businesses worldwide. And then another and related issue is the harboring of crooks. So. There's a huge cybercrime, multi, uh, well, you may have a better estimate, but certainly in the tens of billions of dollars, but maybe trillion uh, dollars in terms of the underworld economy that's developed around uh, cyber thievery and its detrimental impact on commerce around the world and countries around the world. There's been amazing work by the Justice Department in bringing incredible cases, uh, cases you can't believe. Like there was one group that essentially it's like the Godfather's meetings of the mafia families, except it's online. And the motto of this group for kind of the worst of the worst of uh, computer thieves was in fraud we trust. That's the real motto uh, of this group <laughs> and a disruption. And you see these cases get brought down and they're a great international cooperation everywhere except Russia. So a lot of the, the cybercrime problem that people think is kind of untouchable and they don't know how to handle it, a lot of it is emanating from just one country that's doing this type of activity. So on the all tools, I mean, that's where I think you need to think about sectoral sanctions, sanctions that have real economic uh, impact are not just on individuals that are proportional to what, uh, to what you're seeing and are multi, uh, multilateral, so multiple countries at once are uh, imposing, uh, imposing sanctions. I always wondered about the guy who did NoPetya because he had a specific target and he made a coding error errors that let it infect many countries around the world. Did they give him a medal? Did they put him in jail? I mean, what, what exactly is the reaction there? I mean, it was probably not, he, he did not hit the intended target uh, only. <laughs> well, we know sometimes they're signing them up. I mean, John, you could tell the, the story of the indictment that, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, you brought on Yahoo, but mm -hmm. it's, we're, we're watching, you know, computer hackers and you, they're on the most wanted list and you go for a cooperation and what happens? I mean, a lot of what you see, too, it's just, you know, some of these guys moonlight. 
on the job. Mm -hmm. Some of these, we see nation states using contractors a lot more in this space as in others. Maybe they don't want to pay their benefits or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they, they get the expertise how they can. Sometimes they're actually working for, the, for that uh, nation state. Some, sometimes they're not. That's sometimes part of the evidence problem because what you're seeing when you're investigating them is they're up to all sorts of cyber crime mm -hmm. and then they're also, you know, doing this activity that seems a lot more related to kind of a government interest, right? And, and But somehow you're trying to link it back to an intelligence organization or, or a military organization. So, um, you know, on your question on espionage, I guess I heard it, but stop me if not, I heard it as broader than just economic espionage, but mm -hmm. on the political espionage side. I mean, one, I, you know, thing that we've been trying to do, and this is really foreign influence activities, some of which occur over the internet, some of which don't, as you see, uh, renewed emphasis, obviously, on the Foreign Agents Registrations Act and, and FARA and prosecutions under FARA. Um, this is, you know, a law that's existed since the 1930s, uh, originally to combat uh, Nazi propaganda uh, in the U.S. and communist propaganda in the U.S. Um, and now, you know, I, I find it a very elegant law because the problem with foreign influence is often the content of what is being said is. What, you, what we would think of as First Amendment protected speech. But it's the speaker that we want to be clear about who is saying it. This is especially true when a foreign country is speaking through an American person. And so, you know, it's very delicate, obviously, to tell an American person you can't say X. But what I like about the law is you're not saying you can't say X, you just have to tell us who is asking you to say X, right? Who is directing and controlling you to say X. So we've seen a renewed, you know, we've been trying to drive a renewed emphasis yeah. on that and drive it through um, the law firm community and the business community as well. That sometimes, um, you know, make sure when you're speaking, when you're going uh, up to the hill and petitioning for some outcome, um, that you are either speaking on your behalf or you're saying you're speaking on behalf of a country. Because, you know, sometimes, um, you know, companies that do business in foreign countries get pressured to help the foreign country in a, in a policy way. And we need uh, to make sure it's very clear to the Congress and it's very clear to the American people who's bidding they're doing when they're speaking. One thing you've done, I think that's creative and helpful on that front is, um, publish the thinking mm -hmm. behind how, how you make decisions and when people should come in right. uh, as a foreign agent. Right, right. So we, re we released in the fall, actually I think it was the 50th anniversary of um, FARA uh, <laughs> on its birthday. Uh, we released all of our uh, opinions and our, our, our letters back to people who had requested our advice, redacted their names of course, but the idea was exactly that, John, to get the transparency of what our thinking was and where the lines are in terms of what you can do and not do without saying who you're speaking on behalf of. And one, uh, just to put out on the, if someone comes in now recognizing that there's a change and comes in voluntarily, how do you treat it and how's that different than the other parts of the National Security Division? Well, FAIR has always been a lot more public facing because you have to, you know, I think when, John, when, when you guys were all sort of reorganizing who was going to be where, we can't actually have our FARA unit in the main Justice Department because the public can't just walk up to the main Justice Department and ask questions. Uh, but you have to be able to do that in the FARA unit. You have to be able to ask questions. You have to be able to register. Uh, and you, any of you, could go there and find out through the public records 
who is registered uh, to speak on behalf of different countries. So it, it's a very public-facing interface, which is very unlike the rest of my life, which is spent behind locked, basically in a safe, um, and uh, with windows. Uh, but uh, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, and, and very hidden away with three different computer systems on my desk and all that. So it, it, it it's very different in that regard. But what you could expect if you came in is, you know, we will always redact. Uh, the person's identity, unless, of course, the determination is no, you got to register, and then you have to register, and that's all public. If you if you if you remember the movie Get Smart, where they walk through all those doors to get in, that's kind of what it's like going to these guys' office. So it's like, you know, it's like seven doors. When I was a child, we had um, a higher degree of international cooperation, and we even cooperated with the Russians on some things, certainly with the Chinese on some things. Judging from your remarks. I'm going to say this. You don't have to say anything. It sounds like those two countries are responsible for the bulk of the malicious cyber action that we see. Certainly at the high end. You're shaking your head no. Well, I mean, there's North Korea and Iran, sure. too, that have been up to yeah. no good. No, well. I, do we have right. the four fuzzy but, friends? Uh, those are the four. I mean, the difficulty, and I think John was talking about this, is isn't just what the country is doing, but what, what they won't help you with right. when they have their criminals doing it, right? Who, may or may not be working on behalf of the government, but in either case are protected on behalf of the government. I mean, one of the, you know, following the 2014 indictment of the, uh, of the PLA folks, you know, there was an agreement between President Obama and, and, and Xi, and the agreement was twofold, and we, we tend to focus on the first was, you know, okay, we promise we won't, I guess it was an agreement in international law, it was a commitment. We will not, um, uh, you know, steal, you know, we'll, we'll not use computer intrusions to steal on behalf of the private sector. The second one is we're going to help uh, you, right, we're going to cooperate in law enforcement, right? The first, we actually did see some changes of behavior for some time. The second, I don't know that we ever saw any changes of behavior. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously a source of much, much frustration. I mean, we, we do our best work when we're working together with, with countries. And when there are countries that are basically providing a safe harbor at best to criminals and at worst are working with those criminals. Um, and that, that was the amazing thing difficult. with the, the Yahoo case. So the, there was an individual who was on the FBI most wanted list. So one of the 10 most wanted. And, what, and he was a cyber crook who stole credit card information. And so the idea was, this was one of those periods where people were more optimistic on the relationship, but also you've had uh, areas where there's law enforcement cooperation you know, around child predators or other areas. So politicians can disagree and nation states can disagree, but we all want to catch this, you know, people who prey on children, so let's cooperate on law enforcement. The idea was credit card theft, that's bad for everyone. Let's cooperate. Um, uh, we'll tell them it's most wanted and see if they can help with the arrest. Not only did they not arrest the individual as laid out in, in the indictment, mm. they signed them up as an intelligence asset and then said, okay, you've stolen you know, a billion or two billion records, now I want you to search them on behalf of Russian intelligence and it's okay if you continue to do your thieving as long as you also take tasking from the intelligence community. Not what we were looking for in terms <laughs> of, uh, of cooperation, but that, that blend of the two when you're looking at, at trends, and what I'm seeing anyway in terms of highest risks for, for companies, seems like it, whether it's the terrorist plan like, uh, with Farisi, mm -hmm. the use of um, uh, state actors hiring contractors to do their bidding or using, exploiting these criminal groups, we're mm -hmm. seeing that 
cause more and more harm. Yeah, it's interesting too, John. You know, when you just think about when you see the contrast between areas where a country is willing to cooperate, right? Child uh, predator issues, drugs, too, sometimes, right? And then when they're not, and what that speaks very loudly to, you know, their mm. interests in that other activity that they're not willing sure. to cooperate with you on. You guys should be thinking of questions, and I'm going to give them a softball while you're thinking, and then we'll take questions from the audience. And the softball is, it sounds like, from what you're saying, that there's been a lot of continuity in the office between the change in administration, between the changing the last names of the various Johns. Where, what's the, <laughs> what are the strengths of continuity here? Where would you see continuity? And where do you think maybe we need to branch out a little further because the world is changing? So I don't know if you want to start on continuity or if you want to talk about what you need to do next. Um, continuity might be the so, easiest. So I mean, on continuity, you know, look, the division's still pretty new, right, 2006. Yeah all of the people who have led the division know one another and have known one another since earlier in their professional lives and you know are sort of within the heartland of national security and law enforcement communities and i think that's one of the great strengths of the division this is an area which in my view you know can never become political uh, because it's way too sensitive and the tools that are involved uh, that we have, the surveillance tools, all of that um, are, uh, the public has to have absolute confidence that they're, they're just being applied in a very straightforward manner to protect the interests of the United States. And, uh, you know, and, and the benefit is, you know, we, we all had worked with each other. John was at the FBI, I was in the National Security Division. Ken Weinstein, who was the first um, Assistant Attorney General, and John had known each other, I think maybe from the DC US Attorney's Office. So there's all these overlapping circles. And that lends a lot of continuity, I think, to the, to the work of the office. The benefit of that is I'm not spending any of my time trying to undo what John did. And John nothing? didn't spend any of his time. Well, I do treat people better, but other than that, there's a lot of morale building. But you know, and John didn't spend his time trying to outdo his predecessor, or you know. And so the energy can be focused all in a in a forward-looking direction. Our, our priorities, you know, don't remain the same because the world doesn't remain the same, right? And so the first time around, we were very very focused on terrorism. John and Lisa before him also very focused on terrorism, but added this cyber and national security piece. Now there's a lot of cyber national security, nation state piece. So that, but that's just the world changing. That's not because the views of, of the folks who are taking it over are just, uh, you know, are, are flip-flopping back and forth. That I think is the great benefit, and that helps the FBI too, because they're our partner in all of this, and they know we have a consistent direction that we're moving in. And I get the, the you know, the question a lot, and I think there's one thing from my perspective, you could take comfort in, which is that the career professionals at the National Security Division, the prosecutors, the trial attorneys, the career agents and analysts at the FBI that they work with on the national security threats, you know, they get up in the morning and they're thinking, how do we protect our country against nation state threats? How do we prevent a terrorist attack from occurring? They don't think or talk about politics and their worldview doesn't change with from administration to administration. That cadre is still there, even though I think they're not currently getting paid uh, due to the government shutdown, so hopefully that'll change. But doing their job and motivated by a sense of mission and they stay in place regardless of what's happening uh, and the churn that you may see at the top uh, of administrations. 
Yeah, I thought it was funny, uh, what was it, um, Monday, that the OPM closed the government. I thought, isn't that kind of redundant? I mean, but, um, <laughs> well, but we were wondering uh, whether would there be anyone there from OPM to say that, <laughs> that the government was closed. Apparently, this guy was, is essential. Was not so, that's uh, right. Uh, Questions, if not me, oh my goodness, uh, I better go to questions. <laughs> Why don't we start, we'll just work up and down the aisle, so the lady in the front row there. And if you could wait for the microphone, please identify yourself. Uh, uh, Jennifer Zeng from, <coughs> sorry, the Epoch Times. Uh, recently, the US government indicted two Chinese nationals who have involved in the cyber for 12 years, and uh, from the revelation of the indictment, the, the amount of data they stole was huge, with uh, more than a dozen of countries involved, and more than 40, I think, US companies got uh, be victimized. So it is very obvious that they are doing this, they are military staff, and they are doing this uh, backed by the, the Communist Ch Chinese Communist Party. So my question is, so what uh, the U.S. as a nation is doing to, to counteract this kind of state-sanctioned, long-term and systematic uh, theft from the U.S., which has already caused a very huge amount of economic loss for us? Thank you. Well, I mean, it's really what we've been, you know, talking about here. I mean, and, and from our perspective, you know, the first thing to do is to make clear what's actually happening. The, the significance of that particular indictment, which was shortly before Christmas, is it is the first time that we indicted conduct that violated the Obama-Shi commitment um, that was post the, the commitment, right? So that was the significance. There were plenty of the other indictments sort of violate the spirit of that commitment. They're using people maybe rather than cyber intrusions, but that was you know, I think the significance of that. As you pointed out, too, that was a very, um, some of the conduct took place before the commitment, a lot of the conduct took place after the commitment, and it was very wide-ranging in terms of the um, types of targets and, and, and the people who targeted everything from very traditional, you know, Department of the Navy type uh, targets, sort of traditional political military espionage to um, commercial espionage as well, again, showing the commonality of the people and the organizations that are conducting both the types of that activity. So what we're trying to do to change the behavior is really everything we're talking about, lay the groundwork for other agencies um, to, uh, to use their authorities, shine a spotlight on this, make sure that the um, members of Congress are aware of this activity. Um, it, it's everything we've been talking about today. Um, okay, we, why don't you get that one right? Is that Ellen? Hi, Ellen. Why don't you give it to Ellen, and then since she's closest to you. Yeah, then you just teed up my question really well. So this is for both Johns. Uh, the 2015 commitment you referred to happened after uh, you know, reports that the U.S. was about to impose economic sanctions on China, utilizing, I think, that executive order on cyber sanctions, the very first one ever signed by uh, President Obama. And in the end, to sort of, I think, stave off the sanctions and the loss of standing and face that would entail, China came to the table and agreed to not conduct economic espionage in cyber. Um, so two questions. John Carlin, do you think now in retrospect maybe would have been better 
to actually go forward with those sanctions and maybe we wouldn't be in the spot we are today. And then secondly, for, for maybe the other John, is this not now a good time to use that EO on cyber, apply those sanctions? After all, we've never done economic sanctions on China, I guess, for this. What do you think? Uh, so uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is about that. Um, it, was, it was an incredible uh, time, so it looked like I think it was one Ellen Nakashima in the Washington Post wrote a story saying that the government was about to use sanctions and we ended up getting a call where um, the personal representative of uh, President Xi wanted to come over to the United States and came over with a large uh, delegation, something like 50, 60 people to quickly negotiate over a two to three day period. There wasn't room um, in a government building, so I ended up having to move to a hotel to conduct the negotiations and hammered out, uh, hammered out that agreement. So you can't say for sure, but it sure looked like the, um, in addition to the criminal case um, of the, the indictment of the PLA members, but also Sue Bin, who they knew had been uh, right. arrested in Canada, plus the additional factor of sanctions is what caused the agreement to come through. And at the time, I was skeptical. Um, uh, of the agreement, and so thought that maybe we should just continue. We knew um, there were certain companies that had been the beneficiary of economic espionage and stolen secrets, and we should proceed with using the sanctions. Given that the behavior did change, um, both I think from what the government was seeing, but also t with private sector companies that monitored the threat and victims, there was a significant change, and it was right around than that, that agreement, which was narrow in some respects. So it, it wasn't economic espionage. What it said well, was the theft of secrets or intellectual property yeah. basically from a company right. for the benefit of its of competitor it. yeah. overseas. So if it went to the nation state, it wouldn't necessarily yeah. be covered by the norm. And we didn't see, you know, there was a lot of behavior in the gray zone that didn't, didn't uh, change as much. So I don't know about whether there should have been sanctions then, since it did cause this big change in behavior, a norm that then the G20 signed uh, up to. But I, now, yes, uh, that if, you, if there are beneficiaries of stolen information and you know who they are, um, then you would think you would use that executive order on sanctioning uh, and sanction them. And uh, from the perspective of those in the private sector who are victims, and John mentioned this before in terms of the commerce tool, that's what brings them to the table, they're looking for help, they're looking for an even playing field that says the stuff that's stolen from me can't be used against me. I, that case, I'm curious here, uh, and there may be not much you could tell, uh, recognizing the old structures, mm -hmm. but it involved theft of master service providers that have a lot of information from a lot of different um, individuals. So it wasn't totally clear to me uh, reading it, whether it was the, th the theft of so much information, some of which looked like trade secrets, or whether you could do the tie that it went to the competitor o overseas, which would be the direct violation of the, of the norm. I just couldn't tell reading, reading that case. But if it did, it, then that's an obvious ta target to sanction. What do you say, John? So, um, I mean, on that case, I'll have to let the indictment speak for itself, as you remember. But uh, the um, look on sanctions, um, you know, Treasury is the best people to ask that question to. Um, my own view is that um, this behavior won't change without sanctions, and 
but what the right timing of sanctions is is you know a bigger and more complicated question than that. Yeah. Um, hold up your hands again, Marty. William, why don't you just start working up the row here and stick around? And were there some on this side that I missed? Yes, there's one. A couple over here. We'll get you. Go ahead. Uh, behind you. Uh, this is uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. Uh, would you say that there's also a lot of uh, what used to be called industrial espionage taking place between large multinational corporations against each other, independently of being back from nation states? I know in the past people were keeping a very close eye on Apple and what their in, in, uh, you know, proprietary strategies were. I would assume right at the moment that a lot of people uh, groups are trying to figure out what Elon Musk is doing in his in his various ventures. So, w what is the size of that? And is it a national security issue? And do you have you prosecuted any of those type of cases? To, I tell some of those um, stories in the book that are more handled. But in the national security division, so in that role, that the way we divvied it up in the Justice Department would be the national security division would. Um, investigate and prosecute if it looked like there was nation-state involvement. As you may recall, and I think this has changed over the years, actually, as this norm has developed, it used to be there were certain nation-states that encouraged their companies to commit industrial espionage. That, I think, has been, there's been a change, John, a more recent. Mm -hmm. um, so certain countries that used to do that aren't doing it anymore. But if it's pure company on company, that's something I looked at back when I was a line prosecutor, but at National Security Division, we wouldn't have handled it if there was no nation state connection. Instead, the criminal division, which has an excellent section, the computer crime intellectual property uh, section would be the, the lead at the Justice Department. And they, they certainly have been bringing, those are just sort of pure trade secret cases, um, theft of trade secret cases. They, they certainly have been charging those, but you know, as John said, I'm less familiar with them unless they are linked to a nation state in some way. Okay, we had one uh, there. You got the microphone, I think. And then we'll switch over to this side for a little bit because there's fewer of you. Hello, my name is Kamal Thomas. I'm with the uh, Carnegie Endowment. Um, earlier, you were discussing information sharing across the public and private sector. And over the years, we've seen numerous cases where NCIC or FBI was reaching out to a private organization to notify them of a breach in their system. And uh, several times we've seen that there was a lack of willingness to cooperate with the government in response to these, especially with the DNC. Um, so in response to the uh, DNC and several others, have we seen a shift in that trend where um, we're starting to see more engagement um, by the private sector to share information more proactively. And then, um, especially with the um, legal provisions outlined in the uh, Cybersecurity and Information Sharing Act. And then additionally, are there any other legal provisions that need to be um, included in further legislation to address that? So, I mean, I, I, my sense is that cooperation is improving with the private sector. Um, and that businesses are more willing to come forward, but it still has a ways to go. And um, that's why it's very important for us, I think, to be able to show to a company the benefits of coming forward. 
and also that maybe some of the negatives that they're worried about you know aren't going to materialize so um, you know that's what they have in mind, right? Is, is it worth coming forward? Is it not? What are, the benef what are the negatives of coming forward? Well, maybe you're worried, gosh, once I go to the FBI and I tell them about this and they start investigating this, what else are they gonna find? You know? And then I'm gonna have to deal with the FBI and they're gonna be in my stuff, right? And um, I think for, for a while, and I think you know, the state laws have really changed this on um, consumer notification of breaches, right? I mean, that's now, the norm across the country. But for many years, I think companies were hesitant because they would be admitting you know, some weakness that, that they had been penetrating that, that would hurt them economically and commercially vis-a-vis -vis their competitors. I think, for instance, on the intrusions now, we have seen so many of them that you know, you're probably not thinking, well, I'm not gonna go to a Starwood hotel, I'm gonna go to, go to a, you know, this other brand of hotel because I don't think they've been, you know, you shouldn't even be thinking that way, they are all the subject of constant attack. Uh, and if they, if they have your personal data, people want it for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I think companies have gotten a little bit more used to that, you know, and gotten used to the idea that, that the consumer is, it, is used to that, obviously still wants their data protected, but isn't gonna just hold, you know, I'm never gonna shop at TJ Maxx again, um, which you know, was probably a fear originally. So I think it's gotten better, but again, we have to show the benefits of coming forward. And I don't think companies are that interested in, um, you know, and I, I was at one for nine years, but if you just say, well, we're gonna catch this guy and put him in jail, and they say, okay, that's great, so you caught that guy. But it, as long as that person wasn't actually continuing to do uh, bad things to that company, it's not, that's not a big deal for them. It's over, they've been the target, they've lost what they're gonna lose. But if we can show you, well we're gonna catch that guy and put him in jail, or maybe we won't even be able to do that, but what we can do is stop your competitor on the economic espionage side from using your technology against you. That's a tremendous benefit to a company. And that, those are the kinds of um, examples that we need in order to convince the private sector to come forward more regularly. Another issue is one of carrots and sticks, and so it's schizophrenic right now. You know, what I deal in advising companies, they're hearing from the FBI and law enforcement, come in, share, we're not gonna re-victimize you, we're gonna treat you like the victim. But there may be other regulatory uh, agencies or state uh, attorney general who take a very punitive a punitive approach, and so when the company's trying to consider, okay, I have an obligation to my shareholders um, on making this decision, should I come forward or not, they're weighing, trying to think, well, what exactly is the consequence? And it's very hard to figure out, uh, very hard to figure out right now. So one reform uh, um, I've wondered about that would be statutory would be to empower the Justice Department um, through the Attorney General to be able to say, uh, that you're cooperating, and because you're cooperating and doing the right thing on this investigation, we are not going to uh, <coughs> uh, we are not going to take other federal action against you, whether it's FTC or S SEC. If the attorney general had that authority, even if they exercised it rarely, I think there'd be a lot more people coming in um, to the FBI and Justice Department reporting what they're seeing. Can we get some questions on this side of the room? Hold up your hand and then we get the microphone over there. Uh, okay, yeah, that one. Uh, Dennis Shea, the Navy Center for Naval Analysis. 
At the extreme end of the tools available for response, what are your views on use of offensive cyber uh, as a potential response, even if it's just as a demonstration? I mean, we could take down the sensor system in China that they use to filter their internet, or you can get into the bank accounts of some of the Russian oligarchs, uh, perhaps just to demonstrate it, but to, to avoid a tit for tat. Don't all speak at once. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give a general frame. It needs to be on the table with something that, uh, and develop the tools to see what it would look like if you were to take um, cyber, cyber action. But that said, uh, you know, it's the basic principle right, of, uh, that you've studied more than I have, it sounds like, given your background of the strategy of war dating back, to, I believe, to ancient China. But it would be the idea that you want to attack your enemy where they are weak. And the fact of the matter is we moved further and faster than any country in the world um, over its amazing period of, amazingly short period of time, 25, 30 years, to take everything we value from books and papers and analog, put it into digital space, and connect it to, with a fundamentally insecure medium, the internet. And that's why it's true today, whether you're in government or the private sector, that a dedicated adversary who wants to get in can get in and cause destruction in the systems. And I think what you're seeing now is in government, in the private sector, that for the first time people are really starting to consider and price risk. And sometimes that means people are taking information out of digitally connected internet uh, form or investing more on its protection. But given that that's where we are in some ways most vulnerable, why not attack our adversaries where they're weak? For instance, if we had knocked North Korea offline, um, I think they have fewer internet protocol addresses than CSIS, um, you know, than one institution alone for the entire country, so it wouldn't be effective. Where is the United States strong? Well, many, uh, the world relies on the dollar in our banks, and that's why I think you've heard so much discussion of sanctions. But another place where the United States is strong is the credibility of our legal uh, system, which is why, uh, again, I think the use of criminal indictments as a way of uh, getting information out that's factually true and giving that predicate to the world is another place where we can be uh, strong. So we need to keep looking where they're weaker and we're stronger when it comes to re increasing the cost in, in retaliatory measures. It is difficult because you do have to think what the surrounding diplomatic strategy is. Do you tell them in advance? What do you do? You need to think about international law and what's a proportional response, which turns out to be hard. And then you need to think that this is going to be more than a one-move game. So when they shoot back, what do you do in round two? Uh, so I th all these are good topics. We haven't done much, as much work. I'm more probably of a fan of uh, retaliation, but you do need to embed it. Can we get another question on this side? Uh, how about that one? We're just going to run out of time. I'm going to apologize in advance. My name is Trevor Guy. I'm, with, uh, I'm a consultant with Booz Allen Hamilton. On the same note, and how long until cyber operations with adversarial countries take a more military turn and where China wants to get more aggressive in the South China Sea, Russia gets more aggressive in Eastern Europe or Iran and the Middle East? Um, I don't, you know, I think you know. In, in some ways, we're already there, not not in, in an aggressive way, but certainly in countries exploring the possibilities of intruding, whether it's criminal infrastructure, critical infrastructure, um, or 
um, you know, government uh, databases. Um, and a lot of that is kind of, I think, testing, uh, seeing how far they can get, and um, perhaps uh, even just lying in wait. Uh, it, it, if we know, for instance, that um, the electricity grid has been hacked, and even if nobody is doing anything in it right now but sitting there, that might change our calculus of what we're willing to do as a foreign policy matter because we know that one method of retaliation could be retaliating against the infrastructure. So in some ways, you've, you've already succeeded just by showing the capability. Um, so, I, I, and I think we're all, all the countries are feeling their way around this um, slowly and, uh, you know, w w waiting to see you know, okay, how far can I get before somebody does something back at me? Um, that's a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. And so I think it's going to happen gradually, but I think it's already happening. Uh, Jim, you've probably done some work. No, I think area. you weren't talking about a hypothetical example there with the yeah. signaling, um, I'm on your power grid, maybe you should think twice. So right. people, are, but people are very, countries are very cautious in moving forward. Even the Russians yeah. show a degree of caution, right. which right. is shocking. So um, why don't we do this? We're almost out of time. Can we bunch all the remaining questions on this side? We'll get some quick answers, then we'll bunch the remaining questions on this side, and then we'll get the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> Can people hold up their hand? While well, uh, we're Daniel, passing just, the... Uh, just pass the microphone from... There's one behind you. The mic. One of the reasons we called the book Dawn of the Code War is I think we're at the, we're at the beginning of this space, and mm -hmm. we're still feeling out what red lines look like, but... It's begun. I mean, there is low intensity conflict taking place. And just like the Cold War was not a traditional mm. uh, war, that is true of the Cold War as well. And we're still developing what retaliation looks like. Traditional wars are dangerous. So I think we're, the ball game is going to be more in your space, maybe, than the armed services. They don't always like to hear that, but <laughs> that's my bet. Uh, can we get the questions quickly on this side, please? Hi. Uh, <clears throat> I guess in addition to economic espionage, could you comment on the role that CFIUS might play in sort of protecting technologies that are considered, you know, national, of national importance? The question goes to my heart. Let's get the other one there, and then we've got one in the front. So you've talked a lot about the important work that the office does. What's the impact of the government shutdown? And by the end of the week, I understand that our courts, our federal courts, run out of money. What will be the impact on that? Okay, you had one behind that, Danielle. You can just, these are yes or no questions, so. Uh, John Suarez, Freedom House. Um, concerning technology transfers with Amer U.S. tech companies going into China and how they built up the capacity for China to be able to do damage to U.S. interests, and we see now Google in Cuba having contracts with the Cuban government. How negative is that for uh, national yeah. interest? Thank you. One, one more in the front, Daniel, please. There we go. Hi. I have a question for John on the, the rules of evidence, particularly as it relates to the WikiLeaks case, which may or may not be happening depending on who you ask. But it would seem obvious that the government has to engage in the same types of tactics that an agency or uh, you know, Kremlin back group like WikiLeaks does in order to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. And to what extent do you run into trouble in the, the US courts and, and find difficulty with the rules of evidence? 
Oh, those were right. easy. <laughs> you can pick and so choose among see, them. So let's see, Cepheus, I think, was the first. I mean, look, Cepheus is a big part of yeah. uh, what we do in, in the National Security Division. We're just one uh, agency. Obviously, we represent the Justice Department on this interagency group. On the Cepheus side, you know, there's been a recent expansion of Cepheus. Um, and, you know, yes, we look at uh, the sensitivity of the, of the technology, but there are other national security risks that we guard against as well. And, and one of the big ones that we've talked about recently is uh, large data sets, right? And um, countries acquiring companies that have large data sets of personal information. You might not traditionally think of that company as one that CFIUS would be interested in because they don't make anything uh, that's cutting edge or anything like that but wow, they have um, a ton of information about the people who use the app or the people who use their products. Um, so that, that's an area that we look at. I think with Firma, um, you know, that will, we also now explicitly will look at issues like you know, geography. Are you trying to buy the building right next to the FBI building? That's, that, that could be a national security risk. Um, but also looking at types of investments that give you access to technology, even if it doesn't give you direction and control of the company, which was the old uh, standard. So very important part, I think, of the national security puzzle in, in this area of the acquisition uh, or stealing of technology, depending on, on what the method is that's being used. I'm happy, or maybe shouldn't be happy to report, I've been working throughout the shutdown, uh, and, uh, and, and so have the bulk of the folks uh, in the National Security Division. There are accepted activities, and um, you know, a lot of what we do in national security is, uh, falls within those, th those exceptions. So that's, that is good. Of course, as John said, I think you know, everyone would rather be paid for going to work than not paid for going to work. So we hope that'll change soon. Um, and let's see. Evidence. Do you remember the other two? <laughs> uh, I had rules of evidence. Was that? That's a good summary. Um, I. I mean, I certainly can't talk about any possibly pending investigations or cases. I mean, in general. Um, our attribution in these cyber cases doesn't require us to do anything criminal. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what, what you're getting at. I mean, you know, mainly we are looking at an intrusion that has occurred and trying to kind of reverse engineer it to figure out where it came from. But um, uh, that's a combination of technical work maybe on those systems and then also just normal intelligence collection that might tell us something about um, the actors who were involved totally unrelated to that uh, intrusion so um, I, I, yeah one of the things uh, I mean in, in the book uh, tell uh, uh, partly because I always thought they were great stories when you just walked and worked with the agents about how they really do build these uh, cases I think for a while we were too focused on the technical technical analysis, mm -hmm. um, and uh, which is always is going to be an important part of a cyber case. But at the end of the day, there are there's human beings behind the keys on the keyboard. In fact, one of the great uh, 
uh, people I met, I think through someone who's here today, was I met this guy and he used to work at uh, CNN and now he works for another news agency, but he started out as an intern and then became a reporter. And he told me that, hey, when you look at the visual, the B-roll, um, when they're showing a cyber story, you always see these dark fingers at the uh, keyboard. They're my fingers from when I was an intern. Uh, they like use that clip and they can keep using it uh, uh, <laughs> 10 years later. And I think a lot of what we showed yeah. is that using, they're, they're human beings, they talk to people, they shop, they make mistakes, they call themselves by nicknames like Ugly Gorilla. And at the end of the day, uh, uh, you can combine that investigative thinking along with the technical expertise and catch them. And it doesn't involve you know, uh, breaking any laws, it involves following them. We're well past time, so mm -hmm. let me see if either John, well, John will give you the last word about your book, but John, anything, any final comments you'd like to make? Uh, no, really, just thank you for having me. Thank you. you know, thanks, John, for uh, being up here as well. Um, you know, th there's a lot going on in this space, so you know, keep your eyes out. We're, we're certainly not just talking about history, or we're talking about the present and the future. I'd say, uh, as you can tell, this uh, the book was really a story about the achievements of of others. So I just want to thank uh, John and the folks at the National Security Division. Still since he can't say it, uh, I'll say it. it. It's appalling. It's appalling that we can't get together and get our government open so that the people doing the work to protect us day and day out are paid. Uh, and so it needs to be fixed and our government needs to be open. But thanks for the work that they're doing unpaid right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay.